it is not going to be business as usual, not for the Democrats and definitely not for the Republicans. This is a whole new playbook that will, I think, result in taking our country back. I'm Jen Taylor Skinner, and this is The Electorate. Today, my guest is Amy Allison. She's the founder of SheThePeople.org and the president of Democracy in Color. That's an organization that's focused on building a progressive majority in America, one that reflects the true multiracial, multicultural makeup of the country. And I truly admire the work that she does. You know, they have a project called Return to the Majority, and it's a data-backed plan to return progressive Democratic leaders to the majority. You know, and they'll do this by mobilizing millions of new voters. There's also a Democracy in Color podcast, and, you know, frankly, that's one of the smartest podcasts on race I've heard. Amy and I, we discuss midterms, we discuss the Democratic Party, and some missteps that the party's made. Today's discussion with Amy was really constructive, and frankly, it was really inspiring. She challenged me to think about some long-held assumptions I've had and some beliefs. And when I feel like I've grown following a conversation, those are some of the best conversations I have on this podcast. So, without further ado, here is my conversation with Amy Allison. Amy Allison, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for having me. So tell me about Democracy in Color. What was the original inspiration behind it? Democracy in Color was 30 years in the making. And as you know, the struggle to expand democracy, it wasn't just the civil rights movement. It's as old as the country itself when uh, those who could participate in democracy was defined as white men who owned property. And some of those same people owned human beings. And that struggle continues uh, today where more and more people, particularly as our country is now, what, 38% people of color and soon will be the majority. Our country as a healthy democracy requires that we have the voices of all the people who live in the community. And I think the the, the moment uh, for me was in, uh, in the... 2014 and that area where we were talking about how it is that the Democratic Party, that's the political home for most people of color. In fact, the party itself was half people of color, wasn't even investing in talking to or elevating candidates that represented those folks, wasn't hiring a diverse set of consultants that could uh, work effectively with these communities. And as a result, our elected officials don't look like the people that they're uh, they're supposed to represent. Uh, I'm especially interested in women of color who are one of five people in this country, but only 4% of elected officials. And I was like, you know, the the fact of the matter is that those who are closest to the problem are closest to the solution. We have got to get our folks elected at every level. So Democracy in Color was born of that, which is to say that the foundation of American politics and our institutions were centered on uh, white voters, how white voters think. And it was just time to make a change and to say that it's a multiracial uh, coalition of voters that will effectively select the the presidents and the senators and the representatives. And that's who we should be empowering. So Democracy in Color came out of that. 
You know, I've always thought that the relationship between the Democratic Party and people of color, especially women of color, it's always been really interesting in that, you know, black women and Hispanic women are the most reliable voting bloc for Democrats. But, you know, the issues that affect us have had the least focus, right? But it also, at the same time, it gives the party license to push our issues to the margins. Yeah, but 2016 changed all that. The hubris of the Clinton campaign, uh, not investing in black women voters, for example, or black voters in places like Michigan, uh, Florida, and others that uh, talking to and bringing out the voters that had elected and reelect Barack Obama, for example, would have made a difference for her to win. That level of hubris where the Democrats, not just the campaign, but uh, the PACs, the donors that sit on more than a billion dollar war chest that was raised and spent in 2016, to have 75% of that money being spent on TV ads and other strategies that were trying to woo Trump voters or moderate white voters. That's a losing strategy. And I think we hit this point where um, with Trump taking power in the White House and you have such a huge number of uh, progressive, visionary, courageous leaders who do not have a voice right now and are actually the subject of attack from the Trump administration, it was like, that's the breaking point. And I think that was where uh, you had women of color who were demanding or actually finding other paths of leadership and not not waiting uh, to be anointed by the Democratic Party, but saying, okay, I'm, we're going we're gonna to do this because we have to do this. So in relation to funding and how the party insiders distribute funds and use resources, you talk about this a bit in your Return to the Majority plan. And uh, But the thing that I love about this plan and you can find it on their website, Democracy in Color website. The thing that I love about it is how incredibly thorough the data is. And it kind of reminds me of Project Red Map in a way. And Project Red Map was the plan that was initiated by Karl Rove. And that was responsible for delivering majorities to the House and Senate. I think it was in the 2010 midterms to Republicans. So um, Return of the Majority, it reminds me of that in the sense that both are very thoroughly researched and backed by a lot of data. Did you have Project Red Map in mind when you were crafting this? No, uh, Return of the Majority is really based on Steve Phillips' uh, seminal book called Brown is a New White, which acknowledged that the country is turning majority people of color. And if we look at the path, Return of the Majority is really how does the majority of voters, which is this multiracial collection that was able to elect and reelect Barack Obama, how do we assert our political voice in the current uh situation when most state houses are controlled by the GOP, most of the uh, congressional and Senate seats, now the White House. What is the missing link? Why are there so many of these voters who want something different than what's happening right now? And uh, Return of the Majority takes a, a deep look at the states and the districts where Democrats lost and looks at the racial breakdown. I mean, if you understand race and you understand race and gender in a new way, it makes the path to victory much clearer. Uh, race is a huge determinant of, of people's voting patterns. And by investing in those who are more likely to support progressive candidates, uh, a diverse set of candidates, and uh, you know, then, then you change the math. I mean, in a place where Trump won, for example, Florida, the GOP and Republicans win statewide by 1%. That's 40,000 voters in a state of 10 million. And this is a state that's majority black and brown. And so by, I mean, today is the uh, Florida uh, primary where you have at the top of the ticket, Democrats who are vying for the nomination for governor 
among those candidates, you have Andrew Gillum, who is in his early 40s and is very progressive African-American mayor of Tallahassee. If the voters of color turnout was increased some three to five percent, he would be able to win not only the Democratic Party nomination, but he would be able to win the entire state because you're turning out the existing voters. So it really is a shift. It says, look, yeah, you've got to talk to and engage in a deeper long-term relational organizing voters of color on the ground in places like Florida. And then you can actually choose different senators, governors, and, and turn those states blue. And that's a very different playbook and strategy than the Democratic Party has been playing because they've been trying to say, look, we, we, we really want what they call working class voters, which what they mean is white voters, or they want to try to woo Trump voters back into the fold. Those are not winning strategies. And so we're really in the midst of a big sea change, which I believe will elevate not only just a new way of spending money or doing politics, but elevate whole new sets of people into leadership. In 2018, I'm calling the year woman of color is bearing that out. That is, It is not going to be business as usual, not for the Democrats and definitely not for the Republicans. This is a whole new playbook that will, I think, result in taking our country back. You know, when I look at the map in your plan, it's broken up between blue states, red states, and of course, purple states, right? And on the map, the purple states are referred to as frontline states, right? And I think that you define those as states which were either won or lost by a 10% margin. And, you know, it's those frontline states that have the largest number of voters who cast ballots in 2016. I think it's something like 64 million or 65 million. So the answer to this question may may go without saying, but why are you focusing on these states? You can't win the presidency without turning those purple states blue. And so when you say purple states, the way we understand that is look at the population, look at the actual registered voters right now and how many of them actually have gone to the polls. So there's a number in there and you've got to motivate voters. So in purple states, sometimes the path to victory is not just saying, it's not red to blue voters. They always say swing voters, the typically white voters. That's a small and not reliable group for the Democrats. But if you understand that in those purple states, even look at the existing set of registered voters it's getting people to be non-voters to voters. So it's both people who are registered, getting them to go to the polls, and people who are eligible but not registered, folding them into actually going to the polls. So amongst those is a, is a state like Arizona. Arizona was controlled by the GOP for many, many years. Arpaio, uh, the convicted sheriff who's convicted of abusing immigrants and, and uh, focusing and abusing people based on race, who's now running for Senate in that state. We also have a at the top of the ticket, David Garcia, who is a progressive running for governor there. On the ground, you have a set of organizations under this umbrella called One Arizona that have been for the last few years registering uh, particularly Latino voters throughout the state. So what's happening there is you're taking a a state that is majority Latino, black and brown, and you're focusing on engaging a set of voters that hasn't been the focus before, but bringing more and more people into the voting arena and then having long-term relationships with them. And I believe that that's going to mean in today's primary and in November that you can, we can actually turn Arizona blue based on the strength of engaging 
voters of color. And you also talk about the ways in which the party uses money and resources that aren't advantageous, right? They don't lead to wins in these states, in these purple states. For instance, you know, they do these large political ad buys that focus on voting blocks that you don't necessarily need to win these purple states. So how do you influence them? How do you influence party insiders to redirect their resources, right? So that they put efforts in the right places. Well, you first got to call out the assumptions that, you know, you're going to spend in, when I say you, I mean, all the, the whole ecosystem of the Democratic Party is going to spend billion and a half perhaps this year during this midterms. And this is such an important year. But you have to really uncover the assumptions behind how the money is being spent. If you really are involved in electoral politics, you, you look at the set of political consultants and conventional thinking is you go after the people that always vote. And the universe of voters you go after tends to be older and more white than if you look at the entire universe of possible voters. In other words, the conventional thinking says, look, you got to invest in those who know we're going to go to the polls. And that influences everything. It influences the kind of candidates that the gatekeepers support. Oh, who's electable and who's not? It, it, you know, what, what are the issues that they come to the voters with and how you're reaching those voters? But if you uh, approach it differently, it changes everything. So looking at like a, a state like Georgia, where Stacey Abrams is running for governor, she'd be the first black woman governor in our history. A year ago, the establishment, both in the Democratic Party in Georgia, as well as nationally, thought, hey, a black woman, like even though someone who like her, who was House Minority Leader in the Georgia State House and as a proven leader, she's not electable. It was a black woman, Democrats not electable statewide. And she focused her energy on reaching um, her base in, in Georgia. 42% of the registered voters are black women. She actually understood in Georgia, that's a state that's almost majority of people of color, that if she strongly appealed to the politic and spoke to voters who usually ignored by both parties out in the rural areas like Albany, Georgia, or other places, that she could actually build a coalition that's centered on her supporters. It's a different way of looking at the possibilities. So I, you know, I think part of what we need to do is to say there's no better way for us to change the way that money is being spent and the focus and the politics on our possibilities than demonstrating when you when you reach out to people and you talk to them and you give them a reason to go to the polls, that people will show up and it changes the whole political map because we're putting our focus on the most reliable Democrats, people who are most reliably, they could go to the polls. And I think that that's really bearing out in the race for governor in Georgia, but it also shows the possibilities in other places. We don't have to bend backwards and pretend to be Republican light or anything like that in order to get our politics represented and to be at the table or leading politics. So it's a very different way of showing how to ex exercise our power. And what we need to do is to demonstrate that this approach can work. So right now we have Georgia, which the groups on the ground who are registering and talking to our most progressive voters, they aren't necessarily the same universe as most likely voters. But we show really, really good uh, response from voters in Georgia, where that strategy brought in nearly 200,000 additional Democrats in the primary. And um, that's the vote gap in order to win the entire state. Similar things are happening in uh, in Arizona, as I mentioned, Florida, and Texas. 
So it's exciting, the possibilities when we stop investing, chasing after the white swing voters and actually center on the people of color who are most most likely to give us us victories at the polls. You know, actually, the premise is flawed. So because if you focus on voters who've reliably voted, that's flawed for the simple fact that they are an aging demographic, right? And that demographic is shrinking. You know, it just doesn't make sense to me. It, It just seems like it would make more sense on focusing on overturning all of the voter suppression measures, you know, all of the voter ID laws. You know what I mean? Yeah, but something that seems like common sense is not necessarily common sense for the consultants who've made a lot of money based on the old way of doing things or the people who, you know, organize their politics or politicking based on old assumptions. I think we're in the midst of a very significant cultural and political new era in this country that says that, look, look at who lives in these communities, look at who is most likely to turn out. I mean, um, until the special election in December 2017, Black women weren't acknowledged as the backbone of the most reliable voters. Now it seems like, okay, this is, this is something that uh, everybody knows, but it was not known even though Black women had been the strongest Democrats since 1965 when the Voting Rights Act protected our right and our access to the ballot. No one's talking about the power and importance of Latinas or Asian American women or Native women or Arab American women in a state like Michigan, which Trump won by only 10,000 votes. But these are the group of voters who together can lead a broader multiracial democratic coalition for victories in the places that Trump ended up winning. Um, And we have this path to victory that would allow us by putting our investment and lifting up the voice and the vision of those communities to be actually to, to change the political trajectory. So in terms of like, I mean, look at, look at what happened last couple of weeks in Georgia, in Georgia, one County, which is more than 60% black, Uh, The election officials were advised by a consultant who'd worked for Brian Kemp, the GOP candidate that's running against uh, Stacey Abrams, to close the majority of polling locations. So it would effectively, it's a voter suppression technique. And so if there hadn't been an eagle-eyed African-American woman who'd been through this before, you know, an elderly woman, seeing a public notice in a newspaper, local newspaper, and alerting the community that they're planning to close polling locations, it could have had a very serious negative impact on Stacey Abrams' ability to be elected because Black voters would have to drive sometimes 30 minutes in order to cast a ballot. It's ridiculous. So thank goodness for organizers like Ense Ufa, who's the Black woman who leads a New Georgia project, or Latasha Brown, who runs Black Voters Matter. These are the women on the ground in Georgia who organized letter writing and protests and alerted both statewide and national media. So by the time a few days ago that these county officials met, it took them five minutes to reject the proposal and they fired the consultant who recommended this voter suppression technique. This is a kind of vigilance that we have to have on the ground in order to protect voter voters of color's rights. I think for someone like Brian Kemp, who has been Secretary of State for a number of years, I was uh, in 2014, I was at the State House in Georgia with the Moral Monday protesters, because at that time, the New Georgia Project had submitted over 100,000 new registrations. He was refusing to put those voters on the voter rolls. 
And uh, he was saying that some of those applications for voter registration were lost. He has all kinds of dirty tricks. And and so this is a bigger issue that the Voting Rights Act doesn't have a blanket wide protection. And the we're really seeing that the courts are not going to be sufficient. Like, like, you know, we have a midterms this year. So courts, the court cases could take a long time. And so we do have an issue where uh, we do need money at the on the ground for this kind of response, rapid response to the voter suppression techniques, of which there are many, to prevent largely people of color from actually voting. It's an ongoing issue. You know, I hadn't actually heard the backstory about the precincts in Georgia and about there being just one woman, you know, seeing a notice in the newspaper. And that's... Yeah. Thank goodness for her. It's huh? really incredible. You know, and the notion of... Black women not being recognized as the backbone of the party until 2016. That's really interesting. And I don't know if you remember this, but it reminds me of that one iconic photo of a woman from the Women's March. You've probably seen this photo. There's a black woman, and I think she has a lollipop in her mouth, and she's holding up a sign that says something like, you know, don't blame us. You know, we voted for Hillary. And that photo went viral. And I think that was a really pivotal moment, brought attention to the fact that, you know, black women were the backbone of the party. And, you know, it was spurred by the actions of this one photo of one woman. That that one single photo of one woman, you know, had a lot of power. Yeah, no, I, I, I think uh, what that one woman with her sign at the Women's March was pointing out was that the celebration of white womanhood and victory of white feminism, that was not, that's not like the story of that around the Clinton campaign was just was really false and misleading. And the Clinton campaign centered a lot of her messages on getting white women to feel pride in the whole tradition of the suffragette to show up and elect her as the first woman president. There's so much in that story that has been proven to be false. First of all, many suffragettes, virulent racists who were opposed to the 19th Amendment. And so there is an unaddressed very deep thread of racism that goes back. And so the racial justice white women who argue for gender and racial equality, they are able to talk about that in a way that I think Clinton wasn't able to address. And Clinton never thanked and said she stood on the shoulders of Shirley Chisholm, who was the first Democratic woman to run for president. So even though Black women were the core vote who showed up sometimes with a lot of misgivings, given Clinton's comments about bringing our children to heal. Um, And many Black women remembered that, but we still voted for her anyway. To not elevate Black women in the party was a huge, huge mistake. So then in the the Women's March, which was, um, I was there in in, in DC, to not have the acknowledgement and to set the record straight about the fact that most white women, 85% of married white women and 53% of all white women supported Trump. That was a tipping point for black women. We're not the workhorses of the Democratic Party. And really, if you break down Democrats of any race who are running, you cannot win without the very enthusiastic support of black women. And so when that that story changed around black women, not only after the 2016 election, but in December of 2017, it marked a departure. We are demanding that we are recognized as the backbone because there's. it's not only that, it's not only Tom Perez tweeting out, thank black women and we're grateful. Finally, after decades, really, it's not enough that we want the 
we, we don't want people to just tweet a hashtag and clap. It's time to deeply invest in the leadership and vision of Black women. But I don't want to stop there. I, I found Achieve the People, which is to elevate the political voice of women of color, because a multiracial organizing is the future of this country and that we can look at Black women as a vanguard, but also look at the voting records of women of color and to the extent that we are talked to, engaged, and we are the progressive block. We're the fastest growing block when you include uh, Asian American women and Latina women. We're also uh, making inroads in places that have been assumed to be red states. So in places like um, New Mexico or Kansas or Montana, Native women are very, very progressive, bright blue areas in otherwise red state. So we have to start acknowledging the women who are our most powerful visionary leadership. And so to me, the story is beginning now. It's not ending. Um, maybe 2016 marked the end of the idea, particularly amongst white women who consider themselves Democrats or liberals or progressives around the role of race. I just did a podcast with Julie Kohler, who is a writer, had a series in the Nation magazine. And I talked to her extensively about, as a white woman, having a conversation about race and white women and the blindness. If we can have a conversation amongst women about the way that we can evolve as a movement and that the way that race needs to be front and center in terms of our understanding about how race affects uh, people's voting and how the responsibility of us to really elevate those who have been unflinchingly courageous and uh, visionary in the time of Trump. And so it's changed the whole story. Uh, we, ha we have a very different, and I think we need to turn on its head those old assumptions about what the women's movement is and who women are and what the women's voice is. And also to really look at women of color being a powerhouse behind political transformation in these midterms and then in 2020. You know, there's so much to unpack there because you said something about it not being the job of black women to carry the water for the Democratic Party. You know, and I agree with that. And it just I just keep going back to that photo of the woman at the Women's March, you know, that silent photo and the symbolism of her, you know, the symbolism of that black woman and the silence of a photograph, you know, the, the silence of black women carrying this country on our backs for centuries, you know, without that recognition. You know, I think that there is a lot of symbolism in that photo in relation to that, yeah. you know, and also your comments about Clinton's run and her not acknowledging the women who, you know, paved the way for her, especially Shirley Chisholm. And there's this question that's been running through my head for months now, you know, especially when people start talking about 2020, right? And, you know, kind of talking about who the 2020 candidates might be. And, you know, then I start thinking about some of the veterans, like, you know, Congresswoman Barbara Lee, you know, and she's been in office for ages. And, you know, ironically, she worked on Shirley Chisholm's campaign back in the 70s. And then, of course, there's Maxine Waters, you know, that's someone who's been, you know, incredibly bold, you know, and signing up to Trump, you know, incredibly vocal. And, you know, neither of their names, you know, throughout the history of their careers, to my knowledge, have ever been uttered in relation to running for president. Yeah. Well, look at Maxine Waters. OK, so she is in California, where I live. Maxine Waters has been one of the sharpest critics of Trump, all his lies, all his attacks, you know. And in a speech recently where she is attacking Trump and his that horrible, uh, cruel policy of separating families at the border, which hasn't been resolved as of us, this conversation. There's still hundreds of children being held in facilities. Their parents have been deported or they can't find. So 
she's calling out the Trump administration and calls on citizens to protest and demand a change. She shows much more courage than most Democrats. And in response, Nancy Pelosi and Chuck Schumer, the leaders of the, um, the Democratic leaders of the House and the Senate, took time out of their busy schedule to admonish her and tell her that it's better to be civil. And I, <laughs> I just am so incensed uh, by how out of touch they are and how they, they uh, like Trump and the Republicans, take time out to attack the most the most loyal base of the Democratic Party. We should be lauding Maxine Waters as a congresswoman with decades of history and her courage right now. She's been facing death threats. She's been facing people burning flags and all kinds of things outside of her door. And yet she, you know, as a famous poem says, her head is un- bloody but unbowed. And she shows the kind of leadership that we need right now. So I am um, incensed that establishment Democrats continue to not understand and not respect who is who is speaking out on behalf of of the majority of us who are appalled and upset. And more importantly, is if they attack or spend time admonishing, you know, a very powerful member of you know our elected congressional delegation and say, hey, be civil, don't don't talk like that. It has the net effect of demotivating its core without women, black women being motivated, you know, as well as everybody else who is like, yes, you speak for me. Um, they're going to lose in the midterms. And we're all going to lose if that doesn't change. You know, but this one's really tough for me because I remember that moment. And, you know, I could not understand the reason behind that move, the reason behind speaking out, you know, for civility. You know, you know, in my opinion, she should have been praised for, you know, being outspoken, right? And if you disagreed with what she said, then just say nothing. Just say nothing. I mean, I think saying nothing would have achieved civility, right? So so why? So why say anything? Uh, I think that the answer is racism. And I... And I, um, it's a very simple answer, and it's also the thing that defines American politics and always has. Remember, three-fifths compromise about who deserves to even be human, and those who are, um, you know, the civil rights movement, so much of it was about who has access to the ballot box, where people were being murdered for trying to vote. And I, that legacy, a lot of us Black women, you know, my dad would take me and he says, people died for this right. We will vote every time because this is our, this is our duty. Um, and people uh, gave up everything to make it possible for people to vote. And by the way, the struggle in the 60s around Black enfranchisement benefited other people of color. The Immigration and Naturalization Act, which opened up immigration to non-white countries, meant that we had a big transformation in our population, whereas people of color are the almost majority based on immigration coming from Asia and, and um, Latin America. It's completely changed who it is to be, Ameri- what America looks like, what our communities look like, and where our possibilities are. We have this long history of fighting for people to have a voice and to expand democracy. And that is such a proud and long tradition and something that we have to redouble our efforts and engage a multiracial group of people in fighting for. So 
to me, Maxine Waters represents the best of that fighting tradition. And we have to have that people with fierce and loving power who are fighters on behalf of the community. So you mentioned your project, She the People, your org, and you know, that's aimed at elevating the voices of women of color. So tell me about that. Tell me about She the People. Yeah. She the People is a initiative that I launched. We're going to have a summit in on September 20th in San Francisco, which will be the first conference explicitly to elevate the political voice of women of color for all the reasons that we've been talking about. And to one, to establish us as a voting block, we are a very powerful progressive voting block. And in the midterms, it'll be women of color that are the core of deciding whether or not progressives get elected on every level. And we're also the best, we have these amazing strategists, the top strategists who are expanding democracy, bringing more people into the fold, uh, looking at a way, a path to victory by talking to younger voters, talking to um, people of color. There are an amazing set of strategists like uh, Tram Wynn in Virginia and uh, uh, Crystal Zermeno in Texas. And they go, the list goes on and on. And these are the swing state strategies that are about deep engagement. And the third, we have these courageous emblematic leaders that are, you know, if you look at them one at a time, it's like, okay, Stacey Abrams, that's interesting. Deb Holland um, running for Congress, she'd be the first Native woman. That's interesting. Rashida Tlaib is Palestinian American and be the first Muslim in Congress from Michigan. That's interesting. But when you look, you start looking at the trend, women of color who are the least represented and most progressive, right? We are the least represented group are starting to win in Congress and other seats, not by being blessed by the Democratic Party, but by inspiring a broader uh, coalition that propels them to victory. I mean, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez in New York is a perfect example when she out-organized a 10-term congressman, a white guy in a district in the Bronx that had never had a person of color representing them. So she figured out as a 28-year-old activist a new path to victory and women of color as a group that's the most likely to face primary challenges from other Democrats are figuring out a way to actually win elections. Not everybody, but a significant number. So she, the people celebrating that and saying, we are going to be critical into victory in, in the midterms, but also critical to victory in 2020. I needed she, the people, to tell a new story to the nation about the power of women of color. And just like where, you know, Alabama really changed everything about how black women are perceived in our politic, that's what we're doing with she, the people, about women of color. And that will change everything and change our political possibilities and actually help us to establish a politic that, uh, you know, could work for generations to come. So how can people help? How can they help with the return to the majority plan and, you know, elevating voices of women of color? Well, right now, I think uh, the main thing is, well, with She the People, I want people to look at ShetheThePeople.org and be part of that. Come to the summit, uh, which is September 20th um, in downtown San Francisco. We have women from 30 different states who are coming and quite a few really amazing activists and elected officials and candidates coming. So that's one thing. And to figure out how to get involved, one of the things that we're going to be doing as a focal point is 
we're activating women of color in swing states. It's part of how we win our country back. We activate and expand the voice and power of women of color as the core in places in the South and Southwest where the majority of people, voters are women and the majority of women are, are women of color. And I think that is a formula for us to be able to take back our, our country. And so next year, the goal is to hold regional town halls in swing states, as well as hold the first presidential forum focused on women of color in our history. And those are the things that help to drive a different story. And the story drives investment and resources, which drives a new political possibility. So that's how to get involved. I think the, the best thing is to go to the website and also to listen to the listen to the podcast. I mean, just like your podcast, I think Democracy and Color podcast, we have we have featured these amazing progressive women of color as well as men of color that the, the rest of the country should know. And so that's the the exciting thing is to just get involved in that way. So shethepeople.org and Democracy in Color, that's democracyincolor.com, where you can also find links to the podcast. Well, Amy, Allison, thank you so much for everything you're doing. And thank you for talking to me today. I've truly enjoyed our conversation. Thanks so much for having me. Thank you so much for listening. If you enjoyed this episode, please consider becoming a supporter of the electorate. Visit us at electorate.com and click on the donation link at the top of the page. The electorate is now available on iTunes, SoundCloud, Google Play, and Stitcher. Please consider subscribing using your favorite podcast platform. Also, please like us on Facebook. That's facebook.com slash electorate. And until next time, keep up the good fight. <laughs>